Okay, so we make a start. We should. Okay, intro. Oh, I was me on the script first, isn't it? Okay, welcome to the People's Countryside Environmental Debate Podcast. Thanks for being with us. We debate three important environmental issues per episode with a special guest. Uh, dealing with serious world-scale problems, maybe finding achievable actions and solutions, but more importantly, keeping the issues in the public's consciousness. We approach each question in an open and friendly manner as though we're sat in a pub together talking with friends, making the size of the issue feel not too insurmountable. Our ultimate aim is to take this idea on the stage in front of a live audience's environmental debate live and unscripted. Sit back and listen as the conversation unfolds. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Twitter where you can share a question you'd like us to, to discuss. You can also find out more about our wider work at thepeoplescountryside.co.uk that we've updated very recently and we will continue to improve over the next few months. Now that was our first live intro, William. That was our first live intro. That was a cocker. It was, it was, it was. It, it, felt like it, it felt like we hadn't read the script before no. we actually, and, and that probably is the reason why that is, because we hadn't read the script before yeah. we'd actually <laughs> sat down and done this. So, yeah, welcome to the People's Countryside Environmental Debate Podcast. And uh, who do we have in the room right now? We have... I think we should let her introduce herself. Well, I was going to say, who, who are you, man? Oh, right. Oh, I'm Stuart. I'm William. And our guest today is... I'm Chloe. And... Who's Chloe? Who's Chloe? What are you... Uh, and what, where are you and what are you from? Uh, so, my name's Chloe. I work for an environmental charity called Earthwatch Europe. And I'm the community engagement officer for a project called Naturehood, uh, which is in Oxford. So Naturehood is a, a wildlife project with community at its heart. It's, it's got kind of citizen science built in, but also a lot of kind of community engagement aspect. And we just like to connect with people, talk to them about their gardens, their green spaces, how they manage them, and just get people to think a little bit more about wildlife. It seems quite hyper-local as well. So there's one specifically for Florence Park here in Oxford, isn't there? Is, that, is there one for everywhere in the one country? One in Marston as well, isn't there? Yes, there is. Uh, so we're funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Um, and our initial uh, target areas were two areas in Oxford, so that's uh, Marston and Florence Park, and then there is another community engagement officer in Swindon, and she targets an area called Penn Hill and another called Tadpole Garden Village. Penn Hill is the posh bit of Swindon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no comment. Okay. Well, I just made it. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Stuart said we we debate three important environmental issues per episode. Uh, we all bring the question each ourselves. Well, one question I've got is, is Naturehood all over the country or just Oxford and Swindon? So the funding for the engagement officers, so that's myself and Joe, uh, is so that we can target some specific areas. Naturehood itself, uh, we have a website which people can go to, that's www.naturehood.uk, and basically anybody can sign up and take part. Uh, it's free to sign up on the website, you can go on there, you can tell us, bits about your garden, you can map your space, which is uh, was quite interesting. So that's collecting data on the amount of space people have in their gardens. Um, you can tell us a bit about what you've got, whether you've got a pond, whether you plant for pollinators, whether you've already got a hole in your fence for hedgehogs. And any, anybody can do that. And that's kind of collecting data UK-wide. We've actually got a lot of people signed up throughout the UK, but we do have pockets of, of higher concentrations of people signed up. And, uh, and joining in with Naturehood in Oxford and Swindon. So if you see Naturehood in Edinburgh, it's still centrally organised by you guys? Or yes. is that a separate contract? No, so it's all coordinated by Earthwatch Europe. 
I think that clarifies that in my mind. So, William, do you want to move into the first of the three questions that we will debate? Yep, so as you said at the start of the um, the podcast, we debate three important environmental issues per episode. We all bring a question ourselves. Now, the first question we have is our guests. It's Chloe's. Chloe, would you like to read out your question? And we can start talking about it. Yes, of course. So my question is, does being part of a community have a positive effect on environmental understanding and how people deal with the climate and environmental crisis? Does it? Yeah, does it? Well, for me, community is a really interesting word. It's unpicking the wording in the question first. In that you can have a geographical community, you can have your very kind of local, your street, you can have Florence Park, for example, you could have Mm. Cowley as a larger community and Oxford is bigger still. But then you also have very different communities. You have, you know, cultural differences. You have online communities. You have sporting communities. So it's actually trying to figure out what community means Mm. first. Um, And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Okay, well, this uh, raised uh, something in my mind that William and I were working on last year, that funding application. Mm. And during that application, we came up with, uh, discovered a concept called global localism. I've got some notes written down here, so I'm going to go through them. Um, Global localism helps combat globalism by bringing communities together whilst continuing to collaborate globally. That's what came out in my mind when I heard the, the phrase community, global localism. So it's the idea of, you know, you talk about online communities in particular, yeah. that online communities can be also very local as well. Yes, definitely. So you can have, but then you're interconnected with other online communities, which are, again, small communities. You can share information across those communities and then pick up, pick what's relevant for your particular area that maybe would be the positive effect. It's the fact that you, you are able to communicate with each other and actually find, well, what helps your particular, the nature in your particular environment, your particular area, right? Yeah, definitely. So part of, part of Naturehood is trying to get people to connect with us online and share what they're doing and not kind of go, oh, well, I don't, I don't quite know if this is right. But having a go and seeing what you can do is much better than just going, oh, I don't know exactly how to do it, so I won't. Being able to... I don't know, post a photo of, of a species that you maybe don't know and go, oh, can anybody tell me what this is? I found it in my garden. You know, I've seen these lovely flowers when I've been walking along somewhere. Does anybody know what they are? I'd really like to have them in my garden. Or, for example, if somebody has created um, a wildlife passageway, if they've cut a hole in their fence, to share that mm. online in a kind of local community and, and to kind of build that momentum of like, oh, well, if, if I know that somebody on, on my street or two streets away is doing something for wildlife... It, it might motivate people to do a bit more. Mm. Who, who is asking, so there's people asking these questions, but who do you find is answering those questions? Is, is, are they potentially experts or are they actually are the members of the community? Because I can imagine if somebody else in the community answers a question, then it also again builds a, a bridge between those two members, which wouldn't have had that originally. Yeah, definitely. So we haven't had a huge amount of people sharing stuff yet. Um, we're kind of building the amount of people that are that are doing that now. So. We had a competition, and we're running again, called um, One Thing for Wildlife, uh, where when people sign up, we put them into a prize draw to win bird boxes and things like that, and then we want them to post a photo of when they've put things up to kind of really kind of kickstart that that sharing. Um, And the events that we've run as well have been really good in that people have gone along to them and taken photos and then really interacted. Um, So we did 
um, an activity day at Boundary Brook Nature Park. Who and runs that now? Is that Bebo? Uh, so uh, Boundary Brook Nature Park is still uh, Oxford Urban Wildlife Group they still exist as, the, as the committee. Yeah, I'm actually on the committee. Right. Um, but Bebo are doing the practical management mm. of it. I just wonder, yes. I didn't know if the Urban Wildlife Group still existed. Did everybody seem to retire, not yeah. just retire from the committee, but yeah, they yeah. seem to retire? No, it's had a bit of a revamp and there was a new management plan for Boundary Brook as of kind of last year. Um, so that's coming into into effect now with Bebop doing a lot of the management. I'm just thinking about the competition, How? because I'm sure there'd be somebody listening right now who'd be interested. How would they actually be able to get involved with that particular competition? So uh, what we're doing, we're targeting Marston at the moment. So if people uh, sign up to Naturehood on the website um, and record one of their wildlife actions, uh, then they are eligible for the competition. So that is, we have a suite of wildlife actions, which are things like planting for pollinators, composting, creating log piles, um, creating wildlife passageways, and basically recording that, telling us kind of what wildlife actions you've done, um, and if you do any more, adding them as well, and then you're eligible. I was going to say, what would be quite interesting is this podcast has been listened to quite, uh, almost all over the world now, hasn't it, Stuart? Almost. Almost. So from places to as far as uh, Saudi Arabia, as I think we've got, um, obviously quite a few listeners of the United States, you might end up getting quite a few people for <laughs> sending in photographs from all over the world, but I'm sure that would be interesting as well. If people want to want to share on our Twitter what they're doing uh, from anywhere, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Well, what's the Twitter handle? Uh, Twitter is naturehood underscore OX. Okay, so go back. You said unpick what community means. Yeah. Is that ever possible to completely unpick that, or would that just delay action? And how far do you need to go to unpick it? Because you know, there, there are so many micro-communities. Yeah, yeah, completely. I don't think that... I think spending a lot of your time just trying to unpick that word does kind of deviate mm. from your purpose. But you do have to figure out what communities you have to figure out where you want to target. So, for example, are you trying to target kind of wildlife experts? Mm. No, probably not. We're trying to get people to engage with wildlife when they don't normally do that. And and yes, obviously we would love people who are really, really kind of expert wildlife gardeners to sign up and tell us about their gardens because we are collecting that data on what people do in their gardens. But it's it, it's kind of targeting those, those communities and kind of going, right, okay, who might not be quite as connected? How do we talk to them? How do we create resources that kind of you know, connect with them. It's, it's very difficult. It mm. is difficult. And I think um, engaging people is a difficult job. And if you say that engaging a community is easy, you've probably already failed because you've you've not recognised the kind of mountain you need to climb. Mm. So to say that, I mean, that engagement, saying that engagement is difficult, is it sometimes from a point of view where a lot of people don't see, see themselves as any sort of expert, um, but that's not necessary, is it? You don't really need to know absolutely everything, do you? And especially if you've got a community there, and go back to the whole idea of having this positive, what a positive effect a community can have, is there is going to be somebody in that community who can help you with a certain question. Yes, yes so, exactly. You might have somebody that's really, really good at kind of, I don't know, making mini wildflower meadows in their garden, but they've got absolutely no idea about how to install a pond and what pond vegetation you need and, and how to make a pond really good for wildlife. 
but equally you might have somebody in your community that's really good at that or you might not know how to make a hole in your fence but or have the tools to do it but if a whole road of you go actually we want to do this hmm. then somebody down your street will have the woodworking skills or whatever to spend a day putting holes in a fence. Do you want to reiterate the question again? Yes. So does being part of a community have a positive effect on environmental understanding and how people deal with the climate and environmental crisis? Oh, I thought about that question more on an economic level, but okay. it, it does relate to uh, what you're saying. And my second note I put down was building a sense of community and a mindset of local thinking allows solutions to be found within those local structures. How would this wildlife gardening movement solve and help local needs? I think going outside and connecting with nature is really important for people's mental health. Um, and that, you know, it's becoming kind of more apparent that that is, is an issue. Things to do with loneliness and communities, not, lots of people don't know their neighbours anymore. Uh, so actually using gardening for wildlife as a tool to kind of reinvigorate those connections... I think is really important being outside in nature and just being in a green space not staring at your phone all of those things are actually really really good for your mental health so I think that's kind of a really interesting point my second my third thought was if on an economic level with the yeah. community if there's too much outside outside economic pressure it can actually remove a sense of community so can you define a bit more what you mean by outside economic pressure? Well, mo people's motivations, uh, multinational businesses that want to exploit a certain area, a customer base. Are you always talking about greenwash here a little bit, or is that not...? Not really, but you, it wasn't in my mind. But it's more a, a, big, a big multinational company taking advantage of a small community, and it may not be for the long-term benefit of that community to be exploited. A little bit like, um, I won't say which company, but I will, Nestle. Um, <laughs> they've, um, over the years, they've, um, in, in what we call third world countries, they've put in their milk formula. So the locals have been reliant on the, the milk formula to give to the babies. So then the women did less breastfeeding. Um, so And then the, the supply of the, the milk dried up and they had no no milk to give, natural milk to give to the babies. It can pull a community apart. If it, A multinational coming into a community isn't necessarily good for every community. But if you go back to the global localism idea, that is really <clears throat> making the, the smaller groups more effective. So the big, you, you don't need anything bigger than that. In mm. fact, actually, the more hyper-local something is, the, be the better it is. It's just a matter of being able to connect those communities properly. Mm. And you're not reliant on the supply chain to support your local community. It's all done within. It's all done here, wherever you are. I mean, we're, right now we're in Cowley Marsh. That's quite a small area of Oxford. Yes. Now there's a, I don't know if you're aware of this, there's a, an online network similar to Facebook, but it's more, more local, called Nextdoor. Yes, I do know Nextdoor. So it's that's really... That's a fantastic what, but, way but, of... But it really shows sort of how small a community can be. And you can actually start looking at these areas almost as like their own villages. We go back to what Nestle did to the, the, these, these communities. You know, they made them reliant on the milk, their milk, 
the milk ran out for a period of time. They couldn't, the women weren't producing natural breast milk anymore, so they ran out of milk, there was starvation. Coming, coming back to wildlife gardening and the naturehood movement, what potential do you see for other outside influences having a negative impact on the nature in Oxford? Um, hmm, that's a bit difficult. I, I'm trying to think, not maybe not quite as big as Nestle. Mm. Um, Nestle want to sue me, sue me, <laughs> You know, William's no, nothing involved in that comment. Um, in terms of what could negatively affect kind of wildlife gardening, uh, so a good example um, from Tadpole Garden Village, um, where Joe is the community engagement officer, is that actually, it, it, so it's a new build. It was Tadpole Farm, it's now Tadpole Garden Village. If you look at it on Google Maps, it's got a weird transition of like built and a funny blurred line where it then becomes fields. Um, it's got little gardens and they did have grass in them, but they had a problem with, I think it was leather jackets or something. Yeah. So one person got their garden astroturfed mm. and then they said, oh, this company that astroturfs is actually really quite affordable. Mm. And that's kind of mm. perpetuated throughout the estate. So I would say, it's companies that there is there is a place for astroturf. Yeah. There is, which is odd for me to say, but there is. If you need access to your garden and you find it difficult and it's going to be grassy and muddy or whatever, then astro is really interesting. And actually, mm. I've seen some gardens that have some astroturf so that people can get a wheelchair to a raised bed or something, and their raised beds are fantastic. They mm. wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't have the astro or paving mm. or something. Um, but yeah, I think it's the kind of it's the kind so that's of, an outside influence, having yeah. an impact. But is that a negative mm-hmm. or positive impact? Because all those homeowners might see we've got astroturf, we haven't got a mower, we haven't got a weed, we haven't got insects flying around. They might see that as a, a positive. Yes, well, it depends on your perception yeah. of how you like to spend time in your garden. Mm. Yeah. If you if you spend time in your garden on the patio barbecuing and you don't want any pollinators anywhere, or you know birds taking worms out of the grass, then astro is mm. great. Mm. but we would like to kind of try and infiltrate that way of thinking mm. and say that there is actually space for both mm. and not say that your garden has to be for wildlife because most people need to hang out their washing and, mm. you know, if you've got a kid, you probably want a trampoline. I would love a trampoline. Mm. But, yeah, but you know, there is, there is space for nature mm. as well. I was just going to say, in this instance, it seemed like that they're the this is the the phrase the Joneses. I'm going to keep up with the Joneses. It's almost <laughs> as though that so one person got the astroturf and then oh well, that's re-, they went and spoke to them and oh that's a really great idea. You know I get wasps or I get this I get that oh and I don't like mowing my grass. I'm going to do the same. What company did you use? And it kind of perpetuates. <clears throat> so maybe with naturehood you might get the same with but with with the yes with an environmental theme instead of a, an astroturf. So what have you got down there? That, that looks like what's that on the end of the end of the end of the garden there? That looks like a bird nest, but it's not. Oh, it's a bug hotel. Well, what's that then? Sort of thing. Yeah. Sort of yeah. Question. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we were talking about communities. Is is that good for environmentalism? On the whole, yes. Do we think? I would say yes, it is. I mean, in Florence Park, there's a lot of very engaged people with throughout loads of different kind of environmental themed things. And in Oxford as well, you've got, you know, people looking into low carbon solutions. You've got um, local growing, there's local farmers markets. People can get produce locally. Yes, potentially that price point is a little bit higher. So it depends kind of how affluent you are. Um, But there are ways 
to kind of connect with that kind of almost hyper local. I'd, I'd argue affluence. Uh, the wrong word. Develops or, um, poverty if it's left unchecked, because you get people with ulterior motives who have risen to the top that are exploiting again. So affluence actually, I think it can be a driver of poverty. Mm, that's an interesting one. I mean, Oxford's an interesting place where I think if you don't come from Oxford, mm. if you say Oxford to somebody, they think, oh, the university, it's very, mm. very rich. And the university mm. is very rich. But actually, Oxford has an incredible diversity of mm. ethnicities and cultures and, and, you know, people People at loads of different mm. kind of points in life. And yeah, it's a very divided, uh, very divided city. I mean, I, I mm. was born here. Okay, so interesting. I grew up in East Oxford, I pretty yeah. much grew up here, went to school here, worked mostly here and sometimes in town, but it feels, you know that, I feel like when I get to Magdalen Bridge that you're going into a different place almost. Yes. Yeah. So Oxford City is so different to, especially to East Oxford. Yeah, there is, there's that side of the Magdalen Bridge and there's this side, definitely. Yeah, I would always argue that, that, that Cowley Road is the heart of Oxford, mm. so, you know, that's maybe my, my own thinking, but yeah, there is that difference. It's interesting you say about affluences. A driver of poverty and it is it's almost like it can be like a wedge almost can't it it's mm. between the haves and the haves nots and the whole idea of the haves and have nots have got have got it's gotten wider the gap between yeah. those two have got wider so how do you how do you actually bring that back again and is that sort of again it's the whole community thing you know i can sometimes look what i do like about east Oxford in particular is that you'll get the the the, the college professors rubbing shoulders with a, a street sweeper and actually being able to sort of kind of get say, well, actually, you know what, you both need nature as much as the other person. You always, you, I mean, Stuart's always been after the Burley fireman sort of thing, you know, so you're going for... Well, not literally, they're not really my type, but <laughs> phrase that slightly differently, William, please. Well, you know, as in, like, engaging with them as far yeah, as nature is concerned. I don't want to be engaged to one, but, yeah. Well, yeah. not what you told me the other day. Yeah, okay. That, that, that was behind closed doors. So... So that that is again. What I do at the weekend is my business. <laughs> again, it's that you know, again, connecting those two, those those types of communities can really can really have an impact. I think. But that's that's the first question. I think we've gone through that nicely and succinctly. Now, now, how would you answer that question, and how would you respond to um, does being part of a community have a positive effect on environmental understanding? Um, and do you also have a question you'd like us to discuss in a future podcast? And if they do, how would they get in touch with us, Stuart? You need the email address. Uh, the email address is thepeoplescountryside.gmail.com. You got it right the first time this time. Yeah. And we're also on social media. We are on Twitter at, at Countryside TV. I've actually misspelt this on the on here. There's always a typo in my, in my writing. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram as well as The People's Countryside. Now we're going to move on to question two, I feel. And I think that's mine. Yeah. Do I read it out or would you like to read Go it? Go on, you read oh, it out. So I think there's only one question in here. It's quite a long one. So being informed about the world around you is an important step to understanding the impact we are having. However, with so much fake news leading people to be, people doubting what they read, how can the information be best presented to avoid being ignored as scaremongering or untrue? Now, there is, there is a lot of misinformation out there. That's uh, nothing new. Well, I think the internet has kind of perpetuated it. It's given, it's given anybody, a pl- anybody can have now have a platform and have, have, have an audience, no matter where their point of view is from. So YouTube is a great example. You can find all sorts of opinions on YouTube and, and especially opinions which go com- flying completely in the face of the scientific evidence when it comes to climate change. 
Propaganda, manipulation, whatever you want to call it, has, uh, has always been mainstream. But you're saying the internet's made it more obvious? I would say so, yeah. Because it is... It's give, it's, it, and, and also, it's an unchallenged one as well. So if you... If you went out in the street or you went into a community and said this particular thing, then you'll be challenged automatically. Whereas on the internet, you're it's not you know so easy challenge. What do you? Feel? I think it's quite interesting because the way that we consume news and media has changed. Like you say, there's always been kind of propaganda and things like that in you know newspapers and whatever. But there's so many different ways to absorb your news now. And I know a lot of people that don't read newspapers. They don't actually go on news websites. They use Twitter. Or something like that and actually they're, they're looking specifically for the source of the information they might start following climate scientists on Twitter because they're really bored of, of third-hand reports of that person's mm. research for example but equally I mean Facebook is a really good example in that mine is an echo chamber of people that I'm gonna apologies bring Brexit into this um, mine was an echo chamber of people that wanted to remain and there was probably a subset of about 5% that didn't. We all know the results of, you know, of that. So it's really difficult because algorithms end up directing things that they think you want to, to read and they don't give you both sides of an argument. So is there, any, is there really any, and I don't know if we can answer this question, is there any surefire way of knowing if something is true or untrue, real or fake? Is it really... Because it's, it's, yeah. sometimes it's coming a matter of opinion, can't yeah. it? I think trying to unpick what is fact and what is opinion is kind of part of it. In that, for example, if you've done a scientific study and you have, you know, done rigorous tests on I don't know what, but you've come to your conclusion, it's been peer reviewed, it, it's had that process around it, whereas an opinion... Is, is difficult. It's like when I came to your talk the other day and you said an opinion of whether a garden is tidy or untidy is an opinion. Yeah. And it's unpicking that. Yeah. The, um, but all sides do it. All sides of the argument put out misinformation. Or opinions. Yeah. Or state opinions as fact. And they come across as facts. I just it's, wonder if there is any way, surefire way of really knowing it. And I'm not sure can, can, it, can it be that, I mean, you were just talking about almost drilling down into the original original mm. data. Um, and I would actually say right now, if you're, if you're reading any mainstream news, I mean, I do that myself. I, yeah. I avoid it myself. I, I try to go to, to directly to the source. But actually, to go directly to the source and find the original post and find the original, um, the, the, the origin of that information, because sometimes it will, because it's like, it's like Chinese whispers, isn't it? And especially when it gets to a sub editor and they give you a, they give you some sort of headline which has no resemblance to the actual the article as yeah. well. It's just all given life to the conspiracy theorists that it's managed. This is all corrupted by from from above. Well, I did speak to somebody recently uh, who said they no longer engage with deniers, uh, especially of climate change, and I would put conspiracy theorists into that because of course they do deny. Was this person called Tom by chance? No, somebody no. in somebody else entirely. Right. But yeah, they actually would now. They now act. They're involved. They're involved in the whole climate uh, change discussion. Quite heavily involved in the climate change discussion. But they will not engage with the deniers anymore because they feel they're wasting their time, wasting their energy. Mm. So but even if those deniers are quite high up the decision making chain, 
I suppose it depends on, on where that denier mm. sits and in, in how much influence they have. If they're a denier that, that doesn't have, you know, a, a global, national, whatever, influence, then maybe you can deviate your time from them. But Well, obviously, the, ma- yeah. the, main, the main one we're going to talk about, we can talk about straight away is Donald Trump, right? Yeah. Well, what, what will engaging in him actually achieve? Mm. I just don't, yeah, I don't think it is possible to engage him in any of that, mm. so, yeah. And there's going to be But he is so a, high up, you know, it's yeah. just incredible. Mm. So is it really, I mean, we talked about this in a previous podcast, where is it really trying to engage in the people that are on board with this whole idea, and no matter what the voices mm. are, and you're going to have disagreements, yeah. aren't you? We talk go back to the communities idea, there's going to be disagreements between communities, yes. and especially if two communities are, back, are next to each other, they might have different ideas. Mm. But then find a compromise, right? Yeah. And then build a movement, sorry. Mm. No, that's right. Um, I think there's kind of, you know, people's kind of steps along a journey in that if you are somebody that believes that climate change is real, then you believe that climate change is real. If you're somebody that sits on the fence, they're actually the people to target because they're only kind of one or two steps away from, uh, you know, understanding mm. a bit more about it and then potentially shifting into that, I believe climate change is real. Uh, you know, people are on a spectrum. If you're trying to hit the people that are absolutely no climate change is not real, you have got the biggest battle in the world. Mm. But I'd imagine in that kind of mid bracket, there are a lot of people and if you tip them into the you know, I believe there is an ecological crisis, I believe that climate change is real, that's a huge amount of people that you've managed to shift along. Yeah. Is it an, are there an argument, though, for putting uh, all the lies and the <laughs> false news and the real news all out there and let the truth just rise to the top in its own time? Because the truth always rises. But what is, but, the, but what is the truth, yeah, though? But you, it do might you actually not... firmly believe? Do you believe the government? Well, some people won't believe the government. Do you believe the, your next-door neighbour? No, not really. I've got a next-door neighbour who believes that he sees things in the sky. So it's like... That's a true story, by the way. Not just planes and clouds, right? Not just planes and clouds. But it's a... Where, do, where is the real truth? Where is the real source of truth? Is there actually even a thing? Do we need to know what that is any more than we need to define what community means? Do we need to understand it and just allow it just to come up? Uh, I mean, some people would say truth doesn't wouldn't rise to the top within within the current generation. It's an intergenerational thing. Yes, there's a lot of questions being fired here into the ether, and I'm sure the listener has got some some answer to it, and we'd love to hear that answer. So you know. You can, you can get in touch with us and just let us know if you have, have an answer to any of those questions because I feel that we don't necessarily have one and we can't we can come to a consensus with this. It's hard, isn't no, it? No, it's really difficult. So I was actually talking to somebody about this question last week because I was kind of... There's so many kind of facets to it. Mm. Um, and they actually recommended that I go to a website which basically presents news from the left, the centre and the right. <coughs> um, and, it, and it tells you what kind of sway the article has um, and it basically has media bias ratings for the things that you read so that you can actually kind of read things from three different standpoints figure out kind of you get out of your echo chamber a little bit um, what, what is that is that online it is, is it? it's called allsides.com allsides.com I yeah. Mean, yeah I've only looked at it kind of briefly but I think so that could speed up the process of the truth coming to the top Yes, if, pe- if people engage with it. Mm. 
And if people want to branch out and go, oh, well, actually, I'm a lefty, but I want to read some far-right news to figure mm. out whether my lefty standpoint is what I deem as correct or not. Does this come back to the, 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 the trying to decipher what's true and what's not? Does this come back to the fact that we've gone global? Globalisation is rife. Is that distorting the truth? I go back to the point of the internet, actually, now just giving a platform to anybody who's got a budget or hasn't got a budget, you don't necessarily need a budget anymore, do you? You literally just go on to Facebook or on to any of the social media channels and you can just literally say what you want, relatively un- unchallenged. Mm. The only place that somebody can challenge you is in the comments and they can easily be deleted. Mm. So, theory. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's a hard Can this d- dismantle community though? Can they, you're, Chloe, you're trying to bring communities together. Do you find these... For this false news disrupts, dismantles community? I don't know. I don't think I've had enough experience of, of that kind of coming into what I do to be able to give a good, mm. good kind of standpoint on it, I'm afraid. Maybe we could re... We'll have you back as a guest in the future. Maybe when we're still doing this podcast in 20 years' time, Stuart, or Excellent. 10 years, <laughs> we'll, we'll have you back as a guest. So... Jesus, have how we, old will I be? Into yeah, yeah. I, you'll, be in your, you'll be in your late thirties, won't you? Sir? Yeah, I'll be. Uh, <laughs> I'll be needing some uh, WD forty from the wheelchair. And I've just realised I said late thirties, and that means you, you must be in your teens now. So you've got a very low voice for a teenager. Yeah, I know. So my voice dropped what, on the day I was born. Uh, anyway, question, my question was: being informed about the world around you is an important step to understanding the impact we are having. However, with so much fake news leading to people doubting what they read. How can the information be presented to avoid being ignored as scammer or untrue? And I think the answer is just look for the source. So that's the act. We always try and give people actions. We so a good action is that website? Yeah. What, yes. Do you want to reiterate that website? Um, it's allsides.com. So you can read news from the left, the centre and the right and uh, make up your own mind. And how can people contact and keep up with the podcast, William? What have we been updating this week? Well, we've been updating our website. So, yeah, we, if you go to our website, www.thepeoplescountryside.com forward slash podcast, you'll see there is a play button right on the front there, which will give you, give you access to the most recent episode that we've released. Um, you can find us on uh, both Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So if you're on either of those apps, check us out on there. We're also on Spotify and um I think including those channels, we're on 30 different or more now podcast platforms. Yeah. We lose track, don't we? Yeah, but just just tune into our website and listen to it through there. Don't worry about anywhere, any of these other platforms. Yeah, you can find out more information about the podcast and also the, the wider project as so well. What's the best way for people to actually uh, get a question to us that we'd like they'd like us to debate? Well, there is a... Um, if you go to anchor.fm forward slash the people's countryside, you can leave a voicemail message. Uh, you can also get in touch with this by via our email address. What's the email address, Stuart? Oh, uh, the people's countryside at gmail.com. Yeah, you, you always get it right every time. Every time you go, oh, I don't remember it. Um, is there any it's other actual memory that comes out. It's not, mem- it's not actual <laughs> memory. Is and just ask the question: Is there again, again, is there a topic you'd like the People's Countryside team to discuss as well? There, if there's anything you particularly like to know about us as hosts or about the podcast, um, then let us know via the same methods. Okay, the third question. Who's is the third question? It's 
I think it's, well, we've had Chloe's, we've had mine. So it must be mine. It must be yours, Jim. Definitely yours. Okay, now my question is, how can podcast production be made more environmentally sustainable, and how can podcasters reduce their carbon footprint? Discuss. Okay, so my question is, I don't actually know that much about podcast production, and how much carbon you guys think that you consume, so... Well, from a practical standpoint of view, standpoint, I mean, how did you get here today? Did you walk or did you... No, I drove my car. Drove your car. So, not very far though, I would have thought. No, not so very far. that I think is probably the biggest environmental impact until now. Yes. Maybe. Because at the moment we are just sitting here recording the podcast. But Maybe. We are going to be putting this up onto the internet, which will yeah. be sat on a server somewhere, which will need to be... We'll be buzzing around whether you're on the internet or not, just in case you decide at three o'clock in the morning to go on the internet. So somewhere, something has to be chugging along. You know, yeah. server somewhere. So what is the so what is the environmental impact? Well, I was looking broke it down this morning, and there's less travel. Less so travel compared to what? Yeah. Then sorry. <laughs> Always, it's just about always, to, always, always pressuring because he likes to be put into a I let it out the silence so people will wonder, well, why did you jump in that <laughs> way? Uh, um, less travel because uh, some podcasters, when they interview guests, they'll travel for hundreds of miles or they'll get the guests to travel hundreds of miles to come to them. Um, or, or they might be local guests who, who they can walk. You know, well, We've had to, at least one person... Cycle. Cycle here, yep. We've had most people walk here. Uh, some people drive. Yeah. The reason I've driven is because I'm going to go and sort the horse out later. Yeah. So that is out that way down the yeah. Cowley Road. That way, pointing, <laughs> does not work on a podcast, guys. Yeah. Not a thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> the equipment we use. Now, we're looking at this recorder here. Now, you know, can we power it in a more economic way? But also the equipment we use. How environmentally sustainable is the company that makes that device and what was the environmental impact of that of this recording sound device the tripod that it's also sat on as yeah. well the manufacturing process of the whole thing the fact you've also got it plugged into the mains there as well yeah so you know so that was something i was thinking about is you're recording in your flat do you have a green energy supplier so are we recording this using green energy we do have a green energy, energy supplier excellent i won't say the name because there are, are lots available we are on a green green tariff okay okay there, there's editing efficiently so i could sit there obsessing about um the ums and ahs and the, uh, and various editing processes and use up a lot of electricity having a number of computers running will actually just get it out there you know because richard smith who does the Ada Set of Pop, the radio show we we know. He occasionally gets out his dancing leg. You remember? Yeah. Plymouth. Anyway, um, he said to me, don't, don't worry about editing stuff too much because you can hear the errors, the listener can't, and it's gone by the time, you know. So don't spend too much time on editing. The promotion, you know, we have leaflets. Are we using ethical sources social media as well yeah. social media is actually as soon as you put a post up there that's going to be as long as it's there you can it's going to be there until you delete it so some server's got to store that somewhere yes i was yeah. just thinking actually about um just reminded me about a conversation that was had on the radio the other day of how much how much 
carbon footprint there is with emails because so many people have 50 to 60,000 emails sat in their inbox just waiting there. I was going to say that. That's the problem with having a seemingly endless capacity inboxes. Mm. My old Hotmail account probably has an unbelievable amount of emails and occasionally I go through and I kind of mass delete things. Yeah. But at I some never point, thought it, of that, you know. Yeah, old archive of emails has yeah, to be housed it's somewhere. It's huge. It's, yeah. it's big. It's my, yeah. See, my, my junk box, my inbox i don't keep much and no. so actually uh I, i've never thought of that yeah it's going to be somebody's going to have an email address out there with a million emails it's got to be a thing right yeah yeah what well, hotmail used to if you hadn't logged into your email address mm. for a certain amount of time i don't know what it was they would shut it down so i'd assume at that point all of it gets deleted yeah i don't know if that is still i don't think their so policy. probably not i don't think so but the question i would ask is considering that we are our next step with the podcast is to is to do a, this is this particular format as a live show. Would that be any better environmentally or even worse? So, because there are different, obviously, different things going on here. Right? Well, you can have more of an audience, more people travelling to you. Yeah. So, you? if we were to do a do a live show, how would we actually know? Because yeah, obviously, Chloe, you drove here today, but yeah. that's just one car, and you're not just driving in specifically for this. You're going, as you say, you're going to go look after your horse afterwards. So it's on the way. Yeah. You know, so it's a bit different. Whereas We'll be in a venue, we sell a thousand tickets and everybody drives there and sometimes people drive, I mean, if it's a show, you probably have two people in the car, but still that's, you know, that's a lot of cars, isn't it? Mm. So for 2,000, well, it could be 2,000 cars, couldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it could be. And everybody converging into one place at one time. So oh, okay, we could encourage people to travel ethically, but ultimately the decision is theirs. Yeah, so, the decision is theirs, but I think there is a kind of... You, you could just not tell anybody about how to travel, in which case you've had no influence on mm. their method of travel. If you, for example, chose a venue in the centre of Oxford, it's quite difficult to park there. It is really difficult to park there mm. and it's expensive. So you could then say buses, park and ride, cycling. If you had a venue that was on the outskirts of Oxford with lots of parking, so your choice of venue could actually mm. potentially influence the way that people travel. Yeah. But is it any better than, is it better than doing it just purely as an online podcast? That needs constant analysis because uh, one of the questions I want to raise in a future podcast is Formula One are trying to make their entire operation uh, reduce their carbon footprint. Now, now that's on all their suppliers, every consideration. Uh, that's sort of what we're talking about here. I've got a mental image of me. They're going to take the engine out of the car and just put a little, <laughs> a little man in there, sort of like running. You may like nodding. You may like nodding. Yeah, like, like the Flintstones. Yeah, like the Flintstones. Yeah. Or somebody in a hamster wheel. So, yeah. And everyone would have to walk to every Grand Prix. Another impact we're, 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 we're potentially having by even producing this is we've got hundreds, thousands, millions of listeners out there all listening on their devices. How ethically made are those devices? How sustainable are they running those devices? We might be running a, a very sustainable production side of things, but yeah. how about the listeners? It's something out of our control in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's out of our control, but there's also the kind of toss-up between, okay, well, people are, you know, that you're going to have a carbon footprint, but is the message that you're getting across, are the discussion points mm. that you are raising... Are they potentially creating behaviour change, which then means that actually the impact of your carbon footprint, which is probably fairly low yeah. and considered, um, you know, are you actually... Mm. That was my last point on this piece. 
The message, Sorry, if it's impactful, uh, the listener can actually help offset the, the carbon footprint on all different levels. Yeah, so that would be what I would say about if you take this live. Actually, people consuming you know, this in a live kind of setting... Are they going to go away with more? They might talk to the person next to them. They might. You might be able to facilitate some kind of audience interaction between each other, mm. which might give them more of a, a sense that that they want to try something different. Mm. Um, they want to, you know. Do you want to explain what we want to do in the foyer? Okay. Right. Okay. Or we could actually have something like Earthwatch or Naturehood. Yeah. In the foyer, we talk about that. We'd, they'd be the guest on stage. Actually, that one of the questions would then have an action, and that action would lead directly to someone who stood in the foyer. So when you walk out, you literally have something you you you've got an action staring in your face. Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. mm. what happens quite a lot with not just this sort of thing, but any sort of discussion, workshop, talk, there's an action point. Go and do this, and as soon as you walk out of the auditorium, your life starts again. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're. I, I, we went to a, we went to a, a, an event. Myself and Stuart went to an event last year in Manchester, for the Brahma Kamaris. Oh yeah, um, um, just to actually observe the Lowry. That was an absolutely fascinating event. Just to observe what people did when they came out, and you could see straight away that they're on their phones, and their life and real life had kicked in again, or the, the life outside this event had kicked in again. And they, some of them might have, might have actually done something and taken an active action from that talk, which was really amazing, mm. wasn't it? Really interesting, really deep and meaningful. Mm. But a lot. It's of amazing people, that everybody was walking past us, knew me as well. <laughs> Right, Stuart, how are you doing? 200 miles away and they're still new. But you could see there were people already dialing into their, their day-to-day lives, so that would be something we would be doing. Yeah, I mean, the idea of the live show is we want to make it experiential, so when people are actually listening to it and engaging with it, it, it excites the senses, not just the ears. Just... And then you capture them when they go out into the foyer and say, OK, we've motivated you now, now here's a way to channel that energy. Yeah, I think kind of tapping into senses is a really important way of, of connecting mm. with people. You know, smells, listening, all of those things actually make you feel different. Mm. So I'll mention it again when I came to see you guys talk the other day. Um, William, you played some played some music on the guitar. And actually I sat there with my eyes closed and really listened. And I didn't... You could hear all his bum notes. <laughs> there was Comment. a few. Um, well, was, But was, it was, yeah. you know, it was, we'd been talking about you know, gardens and wildlife and you've been showing stuff about sound recordings of birds and there were loads of different ways that you kind of presented to absorb kind of connecting with nature. Mm. One thing I do want to go back on, uh, this whole podcast we've been talking about, uh, what's been running through it, a community. The first question was about community. Then it was, uh, your question, William, was... uh, you know, false news, uh, which infiltrates communities. And then mm. it's the, the podcast. Well, this is a community. You've got a community of listeners. You've got a community of podcasters. Something I've made a note of while during the while we've been talking, going back to globalism, uh, it makes us reliant, makes local communities reliant and actually enslaves us to debt in many ways. How can we remove that reliance while still collaborating Globally, you ask some very big questions. I know, and sometimes you have to unpick them in your brain before you even actually start answering them. I'm just yeah. making a puzzled face. Um. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Now, if we can't answer it, maybe you can. 
Yeah, so, that's again, it's one of those questions. If they've got, if somebody's listening and has got the answer, how can they invite themselves on the podcast to be a guest? Yeah, if somebody wants to know, if you know somebody who would be, you feel would be a really good podcast guest, and Chloe will ask you the same question, and then they can get in touch with us on our email address. And what's our email address, Stuart? Oh, it's the People's Countryside, William. At gmail.com. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, I was just thinking about this community idea as well, is if you, if you, if you have a live, live, having this live event, you're very likely to have people from very different walks of life in that room. And maybe, again, that's the opportunity, because you've got this action, or these actions, at the end of the show, that people actually will be stood next to each other, really don't have any idea where they're from, or what their background mm-hmm. is, and that's where they make the internet connectivity. So they could be from different communities, and that's another chance for communities then to, to interconnect with each other. But there's also the, the, the issue of, of um, you know, you, we're talking about communities trying to make themselves sustainable, but how can they compete with the global players? Because the global players can get things and supply things a lot cheaper. That's the perception. But a lot of the globalisation is subsidised by governments. So it, we're, we're okay. If we keep it clo- uh, local, it's going to be more expensive. But actually, globalism is expensive. We don't see it because it's subsidised by the governments or other bodies. No, I think there's It's also, another way of burying the truth. Yeah, but there's also tapping into consumerism as a, as a way that we, we live. Mm. You know, we are told that we must consume things all the time and there's a kind of throwaway culture of everything. There's fast fashion, there's all of this. And actually, you don't need that much and you don't need to keep going out and buying things and mm. you can repair stuff. So... Um, we're running a workshop um, next week. Well, in bird box term. building. Uh, bird box building, exactly. I haven't bought three electric drill drivers. I haven't bought them. I'm borrowing them from the library of things. Yeah. Because I don't need three drills sat in a cupboard. Yeah. I need three drills for, for a day. Yeah. And it's getting the, that kind of community sharing, you know, not needing to consume all the time. So consumerism is burying the truth again then. So there's so many threads running through this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. You've got globalism, you've got com- community, and you've got the burying of truth. I, I was going to throw a challenge at you, Chloe, Ooh, you okay. said, which, you said, which you said earlier was that if the farmer's market can be expensive, more expensive than the supermarket in yes. particular. Now that's very true. Uh, the thing I would say is that actually quite often when you buy something from a local producer from a local farm, for example, the quality and the nutrient nutrient value, value of that food is higher and actually it's more filling because of that and you probably would, don't have to buy as much as you normally would do at a supermarket. And also when you go to, a, if you go to a supermarket, you're mindlessly consuming, you actually might actually even buy more than you actually need because of the special offers. So yes. there is a balance there, do you not think? I do think there's a balance there, and I have learned never to go to the supermarket when I'm hungry because the biscuit aisle is definitely my nemesis. Um, I would say that if people don't normally shop at a farmer's market, they wouldn't know that. Mm. How do you get people that don't normally shop at a farmer's market to actually taste that produce to begin with, to, to actually change their behaviour and not go to Lidl or Aldi or Tesco and actually go to the farmer's market and experience that for the first time? Yes, I would say, I mean, here's a, here's, 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 a, here's a solution, here's an action for you right now. Go and find your local farmer's market. Just go there for, go there for, go there for one thing. Yeah. Just think about one thing you want to buy. I want to buy some carrots that, will, that have still got mud on them, because that's what you'll get at a local, local farmer's market. 
you'll go there you might you'll also find because it's a local farmers market there are people that are really hyper local to where you live um i know that the east oxford farmers market has farms from within oxfordshire um that you actually then start to engage with people within your local community as well it's another in community engagement it's another crossover of different people there's many different people will go to that sort of that sort of community market so maybe your action for today is to go and find your local farmer's market and just buy one thing. Don't have to do anything more complicated than that, right? Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent action. I give people an action of actually exploring Patreon. What's Patreon, William? Oh, Patreon. Patreon is a way you can support this podcast. Uh, we how are, does it work? How does it work? You're able to make a, um, well, basically a pledge every month and for that pledge you get a little reward back don't you don't or you, you can just make a one-off pledge or you can make a one-off pledge one of them is the top pledge is um you could actually be uh, a guest on this or actually co-host this particular podcast yeah exactly and um, where is our what is our what is our patron website Stuart? it's www.william <laughs> patreon.com it's not got william in front of patreon no um. <laughs> it's patreon.com the forward slash people's countryside. Mm. And how do they email us, Stuart? Oh, it's uh, Chloe, you should know by now. What's the email? The email is thepeoplescountryside at gmail.com. <laughs> okay. Just to end this podcast in a slightly different way, you got any questions for us? Oh, gosh. Okay. No. I kind of built my questions into. Yeah. I, I also want to ask is uh, Chloe's got a tattoo on the inner side of her arm here. What is that? Yes. What um, animal is that? It's a fox. It's not a fox from the UK. Right. Uh, so this is a photo that I took of a fox in Mexico um, when I was working for Operation Wallacea. So it would come into camp and just kind of wander around and we'd see its eyes kind of when we were looking out of the kitchen in the mornings in the dark. Um, so this is a photo that I took and I wanted a bit of a memento. Yeah, it's like an so, ink, ink, ink outline, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so it's just an outline of the fox. So it's actually yeah. specifically from the photograph? That's yes, what the yeah, it's from the photograph. Yeah. <coughs> Wasn't Wallacea a project in Indonesia? So Operation Wallacea have projects kind of across, okay. um, across the globe. Um, they're long-running kind of monitoring projects. So I've worked as a mammal research um, scientist at uh, their project in Romania. And in Mexico, but they've got projects in, um, yeah, they've got, oh gosh, there's, there's loads of places. It's, yeah, to list them would be slightly bonkers. So, okay, so I reiterate, you got any so questions? Have, question have, have you got any questions for us? A personal one. Any question could be, could be about anything, unless it's asking where babies come from. Because uh, <laughs> I, I still, I don't know to this day. What's the furthest away that somebody has come to be a guest on your podcast? Oh, good grief. Uh, you asked for a question. <laughs> Okay. Well, right, let's go through then. You know, you got Pete Hughes, Pete Hughes. Oxford Mail. But he came sure where he came from. Osney, he came from Osney Mead. He came straight from work. Right, so Osney Mead. Okay. You had um, Tom Carman. No, no, no. You had Martin Gibson. Oh, you're going for chronological. Yeah, chronological. <laughs> now he lives um, Didcot Way, but he cycles everywhere. Yeah. So did he cycle here? Yeah, he did cycle for the podcast. Yeah, he? he When I interviewed him at Clue Hill Farm, he cycled there. Oh, oh. Uh, in the pouring rain and we just drove by waving at him <laughs> anyway uh, you had David Mulholland he drove from Whitney yep uh, Tom Carman he walked 
Yeah. From the uh, halfway down the Cullen Road. Tom McCulloch walked from Scotland. No, he didn't. He, he <laughs> drove from Ensham, didn't he? Ensham, yeah. Um, so it sounds like, at the moment, it sounds like Martin Gibson might have been the furthest, but if he cycled all the way here, that's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's the, he's the furthest one. We, the furthest we've travelled to interview somebody, one was London, one was Plymouth, we were there anyway. We didn't I, go yeah, we didn't. I was going to ask if you if you kind of have people that are not kind of Oxfordshire based, is that kind of tied in with a trip anyway? Or if say you had two people you wanted to record with in London, would you do two yeah. sessions of the podcast yeah, in a day? Exactly. I mean, uh, we're, we're there anyway when we're travelling. We're not going there just as a one-off. You said Plymouth. It wasn't Plymouth. It was Truro. Truro. Yeah. Which is even further. Yeah. But we were on a road trip last year. Um, six-day road trip. Six-day road trip. Uh, visiting Plymouth Hospital Radio, uh, we went to a um, a nature reserve, the Birchin Valley, Birchin Valley Nature Reserve, which is right by the hospital. It's absolutely stunning. Um, but then we were down into St Austell and then down into St Austell, as yeah, you St. Told, Austell. tell me off, and into Truro. Sorry, Truro, as you yeah. told me off as well. So that would be the furthest we went. Okay, but it wasn't specifically for but that. But it was, yeah. So I think specifically the furthest we've gone is London. Holborn. Yeah, we did do that in one go. Yes, and that was done on the train. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so, Chloe, what's Nature Hoods again? Uh, it's www.naturehood.uk um, and you can search on Twitter for hashtag naturehood or you can, if you're local to Oxford, uh, follow us at nature, sorry, at, oh gosh, engaged brain, at naturehood underscore ox. Oxford. That's the outtake right there. Yeah. That's the <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks very okay. much for being uh, being our guest today, Chloe. It's been a good conversation. And um, thanks for listening to the People's Countryside Environmental Debate podcast. Who will be our next guest? Our next guest is Jake Bacchus from Empathy Sustainability. Um, he and I have never met. That's going to be our next recording. Um, it all depends. The release dates will be confirmed as and when we get everything sorted. Okay, thank you very much.